Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Robert Hood. Of all the influential figures to come out of Detroit, Hood's music is perhaps closest to techno in its modern state. Sleek, tripping and driving. What's more, he's still making music that's routinely rinsed by all types of DJs. With his daughter Lyric, the floor plan project has proved particularly fertile. Their anthemic, gospel techno bangers have been crushing dance floors around the world for the past few years and are an almost inescapable presence in the club and festival circuit. During Resident Advisors Conference Program at Deckmantle Festival back in August, Hood spoke to Stephen Titmus about his early encounters with Mike Banks and Jeff Mills, learning from his daughter and the secret to a great loop. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Robert Hood is up next. So it's absolutely no exaggeration to say Robert is one of the most influential figures in electronic music. For one thing, he was a founding member of Underground Resistance. Add to that the fact he more or less invented minimal techno. But I think what's most important is Robert's still making completely vital music 30 years into his career. Um, We're going to be having a discussion about his career today and his history. So ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Robert Hood. How you doing, Robert? Doing pretty good. Amazing. So we're at Deck Mantle Festival. You've played every one since 2013, right? Is that right? I think so. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> so when did you first get involved with the Deck Mantle crew? Let's see, maybe I think it's about six years ago, I think. Um, I think the first event got completely blown away and I think when I say blown away there was a huge storm that came in you know as soon as I put the needle on the record and uh, this this crazy storm came and blew everything away and uh, so we had to hunker down in this tent I mean there's rain pouring mud everywhere uh, tents flying everywhere it was horrible and uh, that was I think about five six years ago so what changed your mind from having that horrible experience to them playing every single festival? I mean, just there, the, the guys, Casper and Thomas's heart, 
uh, they're true to the culture. So I, I said, I'll give them another chance. <laughs> I think we'll try it again. So I played a live uh, uh, booking with them and it was just, just I mean, banging hard. And the, the, the atmosphere in there was just real and it was pure. So I said, well, well, we'll keep this relationship going. We'll see where it goes. Fantastic. And this event is obviously part of a wider tour. I was um, looking at your listings. I think you've, you're going to play something like 20 countries this year, something along those lines. Is that right? You see, I'm the last one to know. <laughs> see, I just grabbed my flash drives and headphones, and my wife keeps me in order, and she, she just says, okay, you're going to play... Uh, Leipzig this week. You're going to go to, to Manchester, and I just say okay. You know, that just comes with wisdom in being a obedient husband. So I just go along with it. So is it part of the the, the job that you enjoy, or you just you're just going going along with it? I mean, it's all pure passion. It's all just just pure unadulterated passion and love for techno, for house music, for that heartbeat. And it doesn't stop. You know, it's just, like I said, it's a heartbeat. And it's just a constant pulse. I love it. And I can't get enough of it. I'm, I'm just a fiend. And for the, for the 909 kick drum, for the uh, whatever the latest gear is, I'm just always a greedy man for it. Just starving for it. Absolutely. And you mentioned your wife there, your, your daughter is in the audience today. Yes. How do you balance that home life and being, having such a busy career? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's order. I put God first. God is always first in my life. God is real in my life. And for me, it's God, my marriage, my family, career, and everything else falls in place. And so it's not a trick to balancing it. It just, you know, everything falls in place when I put God first. Absolutely. And of course, um, Lyric has been uh, someone with you on tour that's been playing with you on tour as part yes. of the floor plan as well. I was just interested, you know, not many of us in the audience would grow up with a dad that's a DJ. Um, you know, um, when did uh, your daughter first start showing an interest in what you was doing? Wow. Um, I mean, she's always shown an interest um, since she was, I, I say, one year, a, a year old. Uh, her grandfather gave her this electronic guitar where you can change melodies and write uh, sequences and uh, change octaves and change the tempo and all that, of course. And so she was just addicted to that guitar. She would just get it and just just constantly just jam with it. I, I still think I have video of her playing with that guitar. And she was just crazy with it. And so I noticed that. And so over the years, I watched her and her love for music, all kinds of music, um, reggae, dub, popular music, R&B, uh, hip hop, whatever. She's got an eclectic taste like I do. It's like whatever makes you feel good, that's what she's into. You know, she doesn't have any uh, musical segregation. And so I just watched her over the years from, from a year old. Absolutely. And of course, there's much you can teach uh, your daughter as, as a DJ, as a, someone who knows a lot about music. I wondered, are there things that Lyric teaches you about music at this point? I mean, and I was going to say that she teaches me and she's reteaching me. And I really don't. I'm amazed at how I how much I didn't have to teach her and how how far she's come in a very short amount of time. She started. I remember her praise and worship leader at church asked her to join the choir and that was her 
really her first time DJing in front of people and how she just adapted to it so quick. And uh, she DJed a set at her Sweet 16 party. And again, she just picked it up so quick. I really try not to add too much into her style. The way she mixes is different than I do. I'll have my headphones on and take them out, take them down and put them to my shoulder mid-mix. She'll keep hers on. She's completely engulfed in the sound, monitors on both sides. And I'm like, are you okay mixing like that? She's like, just get out of the way. Let me do my thing. And so I said, just, okay, let me step back. And she's teaching me how to be very selective in, in what I'm playing, in my decision making. And so I'm just watching her and, and I'm just amazed. Because that's almost like the ultimate fatherhood conundrum, trying to steer your kid in one way, but not doing too much of, of, of your own That's on it. it. And then when I think, okay, I want to step in and teach her a different technique to um, take her further, I end up teaching myself something. I learn something from from her, how to just lay back, relax, and just calm down, let her do her thing. Not only does Lyric come from a musical family, your family is also musical. You know, what did they make of your music growing up? You know, was there a similar relationship there? They thought I was a nut. A nut? They thought, my mother thought that, you know, this techno thing, first of all, what is this? And what, do you, what is techno? What's tech? And just trying to explain to my mother and to my grandparents what it is I wanted to do. My father was a jazz musician. He played piano, drums, and, and trumpet, uh, bebop jazz. And so all my parents knew is if you weren't on Soul Train, you weren't making it, okay? I remember having this big drag out argument with my mother about what I wanted to do. I said, I have to do this. Met Juan Atkins and seen Derek May and Kevin Saunderson and uh, Jeff Mills. And I said, you know, I'm, it's in my vision. It, this is in my blood. This is something I must do. And it was just pure vision. And uh, it, it just locks in your mind. You think about it from the time you wake up until the time you go to bed. And so that's when I knew it, this is something that's, that's, that's in me. And they didn't really understand it. You know, they, they said they tried to describe it. I remember my mother calling me from work and I was, you know, at home playing craft work or something like that. And it was just, you know, just, just beats going. And she just, what is that? What is that crazy music you're playing? You know, because she comes from the age of, uh, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, you know, where they call it real music. I said, this is, this is the real deal. You just don't know it yet. This is not a fad. Did any of the older generation eventually get it when they saw you becoming successful or was it still, nah? It was starting to come, I think, you know, techno and house music is something you have to be there and experience to get. You have to feel it and you have to feel it loud. You have to be in a club. Yeah, you have to feel that kick hitting you in the chest and feel the, the, and feel the presence in the room. It's sort of a spiritual thing. And like I said, it's something you have to be there to experience. And so I think when they started to come to uh, some, some parties that I was playing at, some, some gigs, and they, they started to say, okay, I'm still not sure, but this is, this is what this is. This is programmed to Luther Vandross, but this is a different kind of um, experience. This is, 
I guess disco is what they can, you know, liken it to. I don't know if they completely got it yet, but they started to connect the dots between disco and, and house. Yeah. So when you're not touring, you currently live in Alabama. Right. Um, what do you like about living there? It's obviously a big move from Detroit where you grew up. Yeah, you know what I like? I like the peace and quiet. I can come off tour, off of uh, a hectic, busy schedule, traveling, and just go home and decompress. Walk outside my front door, look up at the sky, and, and just breathe for a little while. And it just, and just clear my mind and clear my thoughts and just kind of play farmer for a little while. As a European who's never been to Alabama, I don't really know what it's like there. You know, can you kind of describe it? I you mean, know? Ver- cornfields. Okay. Uh, cow pastures. You got cotton growing over here. You got corn gr- growing over here. And every once in a while, a deer will come out. I remember almost running over a cow that was in the middle of the dirt road. It's red clay dirt road. Not all of Alabama. I mean, there are paved roads, but our road, the road that we live on, we just got paved uh, maybe uh, six or seven years ago. A couple of years ago, I was having, had beef with wild hogs, constantly having a problem with wild hogs tearing up my yard. And so um, if you can imagine a city boy from Detroit out in the field with a rifle, trying to hunt down wild hogs in the middle of the night, and I don't know nothing about wild hogs. And so that's Alabama life. I don't... Did, did you eventually deal with those hogs? No. No, 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 no. I, I ended up hiring a guy from another county who was the, the, one of the county's best hog hunters, the hog whisperer. And so, and so yeah, this guy, who, who turned out to be a musician, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so we ended up having a lot in common. But this guy is, you know, is a big gun advocate, lots of guns in the South, very conservative, very different from, from where I'm from and very unfamiliar. And, but that's what it is, you know. Well, we've already mentioned um, faith. You know, you obviously said that's something that's hugely important to your life and, and the life of your family. Yes. Um, one thing I found, and of course everyone must ask you this, is that you're an ordained minister, but I just wondered at what point did you feel that that was something that you wanted to do? I can go back to uh, Detroit, and I was at my wife's church. I was the, um, the sound man. One, one Sunday night, we were having like a revival, and uh, there was a, a visiting pastor. I was working the sound over in the corner of the church, and all of a sudden he just turned around and, and said, you're going to preach. And I'm looking behind me like, who is he talking to? There's nobody behind me, but of course I'm against the wall, and he can't be talking to me. Um, and he said it again, you, you, you you're going to preach. And, you know, mind you, I, I'm the type of guy, I was very painfully shy growing up. Uh, not one to speak and, you know, barely said hello. You know, a very quiet, very um, reserved. And so for him to say that, I couldn't even imagine standing in front of a congregation and talking to anybody about the Word of God or, or, or preaching the gospel. But the thing is, although I couldn't imagine it and see it, I received it and I accepted it and I said, okay. 
I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know why he's saying this to me. And but he said it, he prophesied it and spoke it over me. And so over the years, I've been began to step by step, gradually develop into a a minister. And uh, what, what's the process for doing that? Is, is that something you just need to study with the, with the church leaders and, and things like that? Yeah, really. Yeah, the studying, of course, but um, it's more the impartation, just receiving and saying, yes, I will. And so and letting God do the rest and the Holy Spirit and God's word just guided me uh, this way and that way through this maze. And I tried to turn away from it. And every time I tried to turn away from it, God would put me right back on course like a GPS. And so and moving to Alabama, I couldn't imagine doing that either. But that was imp an important step in my spiritual development is leaving this familiar place, Detroit, and going to Alabama, where's a uh, conservative, different environment than I'm used to in order to go to the next step. And so from there, I began to go to the school of ministry at my church over the years and, and just study and go from one level to the next, to the next, to the next, and just grow. One thing I found very interesting is that you once said uh, gospel music and techno are not very far apart. I just wondered how, how do you see it that way? Well, if you can imagine Jesus being a DJ, and what I mean by that is, and I, I know that sounds Jesus being a DJ, what, what is, but Jesus would take stories and parables and spin them and tell them to people. He spoke a lot figuratively and in parables and uh, just one story to the next about the uh, sower who sows the word and about um, uh, the story of the fig tree, and that was his ministry. So, you know, as a, as a DJ and as a minister, every track that I play is like a parable. It's like a chapter in, a, in, in, in the Bible. You go from Genesis to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on, and you put these together and, and to tell a story. And so every album that I create, me and my daughter create, I try to liken it to uh, stories from the Bible. It's just taking this story and, and this story from Luke and First uh, John and Revelations and, and painting a picture. And so that's, that's how I look at techno and house music and being a DJ. You're preaching something. It's just, it just the only thing is what are you preaching? Are you preaching hate? Are you preaching love? Are you preaching anger? You know, what is it that you're preaching? Are you just preaching nothing? Are you, are you just putting random tracks together. And to me, I've always believed that you need to tell a story. You need to take the listener someplace. And of course, you know, with your floor plan stuff, where there's... God made you funky. You got that right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a... Yes, sir. Headsy heckle there. All right. <laughs> and the express. That's, um, but that's right. God, yeah. God did make me... You know, he's exactly right. God did make me funky. He made me soulful. He put that soul down down in me in the recesses of my being and I'm just bringing it out. So he's exactly right. Who said that? <laughs> All right, my brother, bless you. Well, I guess, you know, you know to, to a wider point, you know, um, obviously gospel music is, is actually just running through all of like dance music for, you know, from R&B through the gospel disco, even like today, Louis Vegas. So, you know, even though it's in some ways you seem like an outlier, 
it's not actually really like that. You know, you, there's lots of examples of gospel music inherently in dance music. Very much so. I mean, yeah, Lil Louis Vega, um, the Clark Sisters. There's all sorts of remixes on uh, that that record the Clark Clark Sisters made back in the '80s. Uh, you brought the sunshine. Uh, Joey Negro remixes of uh, that track, and so yeah, gospel music has since the late '70s, early '80s has been intertwined with the discotheque. Uh, the Clark Sisters, as a matter of fact, were invited to perform at. I think it was Studio 54, and they had to turn it down because of the church's uh, religious beliefs. And so my thing is, though, why not bring the church to the disco? You know, the Clark sisters were uh, nominated for a Grammy. They didn't go on to perform at the Grammy Award ceremony because uh, the church they attended forbid it. They forbade it. Is, am I saying that? But they were against it. And so my job as a techno DJ who is in this environment is to, again, you may not necessarily ever get to a church, but it's my job to can bring the church and the Bible to the dance floor. So you said about your music telling a story and with floor plan stuff, you know, that's kind of clear, the samples there and things like that. Right. But how about, you know, on an instrumental Robert Hood track where it's a loop, how does that tell a story? You can feel the soul. You can feel it in, in the hi-hats, in the rhythm. There's a rhythm inside of, inside of the rhythm. And that speaks, that, that there's emotion in that. There's passion in that. Whereas a lot of minimal tracks are void of that, of soul, of emotion. And just like a painting, just like any uh, a book or, or, or a film, it has to have soul. It has to have emotion. And you, you can take some films that are, uh, have a, a, a lot of um, special effects and great production, but lacking soul, lacking emotion, and, and, and lacking a compelling story that's going to take you from here to there, that's going to take you someplace. Yeah. So, so how do you know when you've got that loop that's giving you that emotion? Man, there's a, a tingle in my, up my spine. There's something that um, connects in my spirit that lets me know I really have something here. And uh, the, the hairs on my arms stand up and, uh, and I'll leave it alone and go to sleep and come back the next day. And if I still get that feeling, then I know I have something. Um, what do you still, after all this time, find exciting about loops? The simple things, just a gritty sample and looping it and getting a special feeling from it and altering that sample and reshaping it. That's what I really love to do. It's like taking clay or, it's, or better yet, it's like taking a statue that's already there and remolding it into my art. I still love the, the claps from a 909. I still love that kick drum. Uh, I still love that heartbeat. Um, it's so many things about producing music that I just, I'm, so, I'm still in love with and I can't get enough of it. Yeah, and you were saying at the start of the interview, you know, you're always excited about the new thing, the new piece of gear and stuff like that. You know, how do you do that whilst keeping things simple with a, with a loop, you know, when you're trying to add new bits of equipment and things like that? Well, you know, when I'm checking out a new piece of gear, I'm careful not to 
uh, grab on to the latest um, piece of technology just because it's out there. It's got to feel good um, in my spirit like a harmonica, like a guitar, like a saxophone. It's just got to fit my, my personality, Robert Hood. And it's got to fit my way of um, my vision, you know, for what I want to do. You know, I can remember back in the early 90s and uh, the Kurzweil workstation, the keyboard came out and everybody was so excited about it. And uh, to me, that was, it, it slowed me down. It, it didn't fit with the way I wanted to, uh, my approach to music. And so I always have this, this thing that I say, it's like David and Goliath. Um, David, in order to kill giants, all he needed was five smooth, smooth stones. And that's the way I've always worked with small, handheld Japanese equipment that looked like toys. To me, I would take that and squeeze blood out of it, like a, a, a Roland TR-505, a QY-700 sequencer. And uh, to me, that was the best thing in the, in the world. And I would look at like a Roland Juno 106 and say, you know, wow, that's great, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for my spirit. It doesn't take, take me, it's not a weapon for me. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't fit. And so if it doesn't fit, it just slows me down. So why would I take armor that is good for somebody else? It's not gonna fit for me, it's gonna slow me down. It's interesting you talk about all these pieces of equipment in quite combative terms, like, like weapons. That's underground resistance. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I come from our underground resistance and Mike Banks, uh, Jeff Mills, um, they treated it like we were soldiers. So um, I guess I'm a conditioned soldier. Ready for battle. <laughs> yeah, got in the barracks of underground resistance. That's, yeah. that's it. One thing I, I, f I found really interesting in another interview, you said when underground resistance first came out, they were kind of like the public enemy of techno. Um, yeah. I just wondered, wondered if you could explain that a little bit because I found that really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. The production was, was just sick. It was hectic. It was very different from the production from... Kevin Saunderson, from Derek May, from Juan Atkins. It was militant. It was more like the bomb squad. And it was real. Uh, I think that with all due respect, um, Derek May, Kevin, Derek, Kevin and Juan, their music was more fantasy based. Ours was more reality based. It was down to ground zero of Detroit and uh, it was for us about the gritty streets of Detroit, the riots in 1967, and the decay that uh, came from that, from, from those riots, and the, the despair and the uh, life of, uh, from the perspective of a, of a homeless person. That's what we were about. It, it's, at times we went from galaxy, galaxy to galaxy. At times we did deal with um, the imagination and fantasy. Yeah, I guess you had both sides of the whole thing going on. We did. Yeah, yeah. but I, f I found it interesting when you first joined. You were you were wasn't necessarily in a musical role at first, were you? Is it Ministry of Information? Like, can you yeah. just tell us about how you first got in there? With yeah, those guys? I don't know how I got that title. No, but I came in as a rapper, you know, and I just happened to make uh, drum beats, and I didn't want to be a rapper. 
I just wanted to make beats, but I had to, you know, express myself and get my ideas out. And so that's where they first me, brought me into the camp as a rapper. And then things developed from there out of necessity. And, uh, you know, one day Mike and Jeff came over to my apartment and said, you know, Rob, look, we are very busy. We, we know we promised to produce an album on you, but for you, but uh, you're going to have to just do it yourself. And that was the best thing they could have done is throw me in the water and say, swim, you know, either sink or swim. You, you're going to have to do it yourself. We're behind you. We're going to back you. But production wise, you're going to have to learn how to work this equipment. And so uh, it became do or die, literally. And how did you feel about that at first? Were you daunted? At first, yeah, I was, you know, disappointed. But then it was like, okay, the hunger kicked in, you know, and Jeff gave me, a, I remember a Yamaha DX100 keyboard. He let me borrow it. I had a little sequencer, a Yamaha handheld sequencer and nothing else. And that was it. I knew I had to do, I felt an urge to do something very minimal. Well, I had to do something minimal. I didn't have nothing. And so I had a little four track mixer. I had a couple of uh, small computer monitors, and that's when I first started to, to produce, but I made it sound big. I made it sound like something that was uh, grand, like a Mariah Carey song, you know, just breathe life into it. And so, like I said, that was the best thing they could have done, but um, it, it, it was hard at first. I had to learn how to make, how to record. Having conversations with Mike and Ron Murphy the late Ron Murphy, who mastered all of Detroit's records, uh, taught me how to get better and better. And one thing that many people would associate with underground resistance is their sort of political edge. Is um, politics something you're still engaged with today and, and keep up with at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm constantly watching too much, too much CNN, you know, following um, what's happening with Donald Trump and and uh, all the latest um, fake news that's coming out. And uh, I probably watch too much of it. My daughter is always, Daddy, can you turn that off just for a little while? How does it make you feel, that constant news cycle, you know? You know, you know and that's where the Bible kicks in, you know, and, and my relationship with God. Because, you know, when you get caught up in the talking heads on the, the news broadcast, and their opinions and ideas about um, North Korea and about um, immigration and uh, foreign, foreign trade and all that, that clouds your, your thoughts. And so I try to keep in mind and meditate on what the Bible says and what God's promise is and, what, um, and, and that keeps me grounded. That keeps me, uh, keeps my spirit healthy and not get caught up in all of that, you know, because this, this administration is, you know, I have to call it what it is, it's like a reality show. And I know that uh, Donald Trump is the president, he's been elected president, but um, at the same time, you know, I have to call it what, you know, I've been trained and taught to call a thing a thing. This is what it is and this is what I see. And I see behind all of the, um, the lies, and that's what 
spirituality uh, enables me to do, to discern things and to see things for, for what they are and see myself for what I am. Do you think the general American population will see through the lies eventually or? Um, unfortunately, most people won't. Most people won't. You know, we've, in this, in, in this isn't the first time we've, you know, society and the world has bought into lies before. So people who are looking at this thing from a spiritual perspective will see things for what they are. And, and I'm not saying you all, you have to be so super spiritual in order to, to um, unmask something. Uh, you, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Everybody in here has the power, uh, has power for discernment. You know, it's just when you accept it and say, yes, I do have this. I am able to see and look beyond the mask of this politician and these lies and this uh, propaganda to see the truth. You know, and to tell the difference in between, hey, this is fact and this is truth. This is a lie. This is just <laughs> pure BS. And so you have to call a thing a thing when you see it that way. Absolutely. So we've got some time for some questions. So I hope you've got some. Um, but just before I finish, you know, you, you mentioned you started off as a rapper. I just wondered, I know you're a big hip hop fan. Um, what's Don't your... ask me to bust a rhyme. I'm not. Uh, right. You know, I was going to ask you to spit okay. some bars, but no. Man, okay. <laughs> I mean, no, I was actually going to ask you who's the, your favorite hip hop artist. Oh, you can't wow. say yourself though. Nas. <laughs> Nas. Nas. Why Nas? Nas is a street poet. He's like the Langston Hughes of hip hop. And I've always admired Langston Hughes's uh, poetry. He's a modern day gangster poet, you know, and without being a gangster, you know, you don't hear about him having uh, gone to prison or been shot nine times in, in order to have street cred. He's lived the life of, you know, coming from Queensbridge, the projects in New York, and without all of the gang affiliations, he's, but he was, brought up in, in the projects and having gone through uh, losing friends to, to gang violence, to street violence, and documented it so eloquently at a very young age. And all through his career, that's what he's, he's done is chronicle the streets, politics, himself, just so, so beautifully and so creatively. And I guess, you know, you're saying underground resistance very much reflect, you know, Detroit, you know, maybe Nas reflects his life in New York City in, that, in a similar way, perhaps, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, much in the way Ice Cube did it and much in the way that uh, Gangstar, Guru and Wu-Tang Clan, but Nas has been, you know, on his own solo by himself, uh, walking through this world in observing life like sort of a, a watcher, from a watcher's perspective, while living in the ghetto, but some, somehow elevating himself above it from, in, from the outside looking in and, and reporting on it. Are there any uh, rappers you dig today that are like newer, fresher at all? Who's new today? I don't even, <laughs> I, I can, I mean, there's, no. Fair play. <laughs> I, can't, I can't mess with that answer. So, um, it'd be great if anyone's got any questions for Robert. This is your opportunity to ask a Detroit legend. Hey. How you doing? Good, and you? Doing good. Still good? All I'm right. still good. Yeah, perfect. 
Um, I got a question about uh, the club scene, the party scene in Detroit when when you started to get into this music, when Transmat started. And mm. How was it? How was the spirit? How did the teenagers went out back then? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. You know, before techno was called techno, I guess we called it progressive music. You know, I used to listen to this radio program called The Electric Crazy People. <laughs> and it was crazy. It was Derek May, I think, and D-Wynn from, uh, uh, from Transmat, and they would come on every night around 9, nine or 10 o'clock, I guess. And, you know, then you had the wizard, you know, Jeff Mills. He would come on, and everybody in Detroit would tune to his broadcast religiously. Okay, so now then you had the Music Institute, very spiritual place. It was a juice bar, just a black box and a strobe light. <laughs> Up in the um, loft, you could see the silhouette of uh, Derek May or D. Wynn or Blake Baxter banging this hard, these hard rhythm tracks. It was the best thing in the world. <laughs> I kid you not. All these kids crammed in this, and it was a private club. You had to have a membership, or you had to know somebody who had a membership. They just wouldn't let anybody in. You had to know somebody. But if you got in, you know, you were there until six in the morning. And it was like church, very spiritual. It was like a revival. And there was no alcohol. It was just like I said, a juice bar. And if you had, um, anything to smoke, you did it out in the parking lot, you drank it out in the parking lot, and you came in, you had, you didn't need it. The music was the drug. The music elevated you and, take, and took us to a different place, another place, and it was just, you couldn't imagine the music we heard. And it was like heaven. Matter of fact, there was a club on Seven Mile and Woodward called Heaven, it was a gay club where this DJ, he's uh, deceased now, his name was Ken Collier. And we would go there and hear the best, he's the DJ that taught Derek May how to play. And best house music on planet Earth, okay? And it was heaven. And it was, on a Friday night, it was just indescribable, it was beautiful. And it was funky, it was soulful, it was gospel, it was always, and still church. I remember the UN, the underground nation in Detroit. I remember St. Andrew's Hall. We had good clubs back then, you know, and it was pure. You know, it was pure, just uncut, funky, uplifting techno and house music and uh, Chicago house music and, and imports from, I remember a record store I used to go to called Byright and you could find all the latest imports from Europe and stuff from Chicago, the new stuff from Detroit, and it was just heaven back then. It was just, just but it was new and it was like a baby. And it was just, just we loved it. Yeah, I'd actually recommend if any of you guys check out a mix from Ken Collier, you can just go onto Google and type his name in. Yes. But it'll definitely be like the best mix you hear yes. in ages. Yes. Um, maybe time for a couple more questions, if we got some around. Hi, Robert. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Um, you mentioned earlier that 
put a message in your music like in books or film? Other than obviously the Bible, is there any literature or even film that's influenced you? Yeah, I mean, uh, Julian Temple, uh, there's a film by Julian Temple called Requiem for Detroit. And I based um, the album Nighttime World Volume 3 on that film, off of that documentary. And then there's Omega Man with uh, Charlton Heston, and uh, where, where I sort of uh, borrowed that concept for Omega, the album. And so, yeah, I'm constantly looking at, uh, you know, sci-fi movies. The Twilight Zone is a series uh, that I was always been in love with since I was a kid. And Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone, is actually a, was actually a devout Christian. And I learned that when I, you know, when I grew up, but he was, those short films that he created were always thought-provoking, sometimes funny, sometimes tragic, sometimes I, ironic, but it, those Twilight Zone episodes, you really ought to check them out. They really um, shaped my ideas about um, compassion and humanity and uh, really shaped my ideas creatively. So I think we've got time for one final question. Hi there. Hey, how you doing? Good, thanks. Um, what was it like working with Mad Mike? Late night. <laughs> Does he live up to his name? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, working with Mike and Jeff, it was constant late night sessions. Um, started maybe eight, nine o'clock in the evening and go until seven, eight, nine, ten the next morning. In the middle of the night, some, sometimes we would go and get Chinese food. But Mike was always militant, always militant. Mike slept in a cot up in the uh, attic of his mother's house. No heat. <laughs> Mike was hardcore. Mike was a, a street guy. Mike used to do evictions in, you know, in, in Detroit. When you're evicted, you're put out of your home. You can no longer pay your rent, your uh, mortgage. And these guys would come and take all your stuff and put it out on the street, all your furniture. And Mike was one of the guys who did that. And uh, Mike had a partner who was killed during one of those evictions, and that really uh, affected Mike. Mike grew even harder when that happened. And his approach to life and techno was always from the school of hard knocks. But Mike was a thoughtful guy, very thoughtful. And uh, Mike is, you know, still very thoughtful and very sentimental. But Mike, you know, he doesn't take any bull from anybody. Now, working in the studio, it's just, just, get this thing done, let's get it done, let's, let's hammer this music out. We gotta kill everybody in the industry. We gotta kill Sony, we gotta kill all the major record labels. We gotta destroy them. There was, there was, no, there was no, um, no drinking, no, no alcohol, no smoking. Um, Jeff Mills, he never smoked, never drank. Uh, Mike very seldom uh, took a drink. Uh, I think I was the one that was <laughs> that was slightly off. I was the one. I was the smoker. I was when I first met Jeff Mills. I came with into his studio with a forty ounce, and so, but you know, I was a young you know young kid, and you know, I'm, all I know is I'm at the studio with the wizard, and I'm ready to get down, and uh, and so, but gradually, I think their lifestyle 
you know, their influence changed me. It grew me up very fast.